G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. Um, So we're going to go from Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favour in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, "'What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom.' And Esther said, "'If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king.' Then the king said, "'Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked.' So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favour in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and, he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Suresh and his friends said to him, let a, gallows, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And the king said, what honour or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, 
What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honour? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honour more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honour, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honour, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And this is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, everybody. What a joy to be together with you. As Michael mentioned before, my name's Jimmy, and what a delight that we have the opportunity to jump into this part of uh, Esther. As we do that this morning, would you please pray with me? Father God, our prayer is simple this morning. Speak to us. As we pause from, uh, in, in, the, in the busyness of our lives to take a moment to look at your word now, would you speak to us and give us the courage that is needed to put what you speak to us into practice, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was in January uh, last year that I first got a sense that perhaps God was calling our family to leave the church that we were a part of for a new season, a church we've been a part of for the best part of a decade. And I guess I'm now standing here as a pastor of City on a Hill, Brisbane, so you kind of know how the story kind of ends. But this time last year and throughout 2023, It wasn't an easy year for us as a family. It was actually quite a hard season because life was pretty comfortable for us. Ministry was pretty good. The kids were really settled. We had a really nice home. Our son, Luke, was going into year seven. He was about to kind of enter youth group for the first time. He'd watched mum and dad pretty much for his whole life turn up to this youth ministry every Friday night and almost now was going to be his turn to finally go along I can actually remember the moment that Chelsea and I made the call to apply for the job here. We were in Lemke Park in Albany Creek doing laps uh, together, talking through pros and cons, what this might mean, and we turned to each other at one point and we looked and we said, we're doing this, right? I'd actually had a coffee with Zach a couple of weeks earlier and I'd actually said to him at that coffee, hey brother, I don't think this is going to happen. As much as I love the job, as much as I kind of really like what you're kind of presenting, there's just so much risk involved here. And I'm not sure that Chels and my family are going to be on board taking that risk. 
Because there was so much risk involved with that move. What if the kids didn't make friends at this new church? In such a key kind of season of their lives, what if it didn't work out? How would that affect their faith journey? What if ministry just didn't work out so well? And we'd burnt bridges at a place where it seemed to be working out all right. What if we couldn't find a house that we could afford or we had to move to a house that we didn't like living in? There were no guarantees with this move. Back then, we didn't know how incredible it was going to be to be part of this church. We didn't know how quickly we'd feel like the furniture here. We didn't know how quickly we'd fall in love with being part of City on a Hill. We didn't know that I'd get to stand here this morning and say, it is one of the greatest joys of my life at the moment to be part of this church. Sure, I can look back now and I can see all of that, but at the time, there were no guarantees. We just knew that God had called us to a life of serving him and felt that he was calling us to apply for this job. And then everything else was in his hands. And so on that day at Lemke Park in Albany Creek, we took that step. It was a big step for us as a family. No guarantees of what comes next. You know, today we're going to explore a moment in the story of Esther. It's kind of like that, but on an even bigger scale. We're up to episode four in our series here, City on a Hill in Esther, chapter five and six that just we had read. And this morning, we're going to slow right down, just like the narrative does, and we're going to have a look at this phenomenal moment in a young woman's life. Explore how the actions of the human hero of this story foreshadow the ultimate hero in the Bible, Jesus, but also set up an example of what Jesus says being his follower is all about. And notice I said human hero there, because of course God is the hero of the Bible. But in a book that doesn't mention God's name, that is titled after a main character, it's a pretty good indication, really, of who we're meant to look at, to see the character of our God more clearly. And today's story that we've just read, it certainly does that. So join me. Come on, let's go together. Let's slow right down. Let's have a look at verse 1 of chapter 5 together. We have this. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Why don't you let your imaginations kind of picture this moment for a minute? What's taking place in the narrative of this story right now? As Esther stands there, maybe in front of the mirror, looking at her reflection. Remember, she's about to go and do something that she knows is probably going to result in death. That's what she told Mordecai back in chapter 4, verse 11. We read last week, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner courtroom without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. And so she gazes on her beauty here, the orphan girl become queen, adorned with the best clothing that the kingdom can buy. It's the Gucci and Louis Vuitton of the time the royal crown that sits on her head. 
Staring back at her in the mirror is the one in whom the king delighted more than all the other women. Feasts had been called in her name. Maybe she catches a glimpse in the mirror of all the things that are in her room. Everything that money can buy is right there. I wonder if the thought ever went through her mind, is this really the only way? Is going to the king really the only way? And yet she obviously at some point moves across the room and out the doorway leaving everything that she was and everything that she has behind. I wonder how long the walk was from her room to that inner court. I wonder if she had the words of Mordecai ringing around in her head as she walked. Chapter 4, verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. God's going to deliver his people, but is she going to live to see it? Who knows? Isn't the most reassuring statement of all time, Uncle Mordecai? Was this uh, for such a time as this moment, or was this her final moments on earth? Because there's no guarantees, right? Perhaps it would be safer not to go. Maybe the king wouldn't find out that she was Jewish. After all, he hadn't found out yet. Maybe she'd be okay. And then at some point, she's one step away from being at the point of no return. And she takes that step, and she enters into the courtroom of the king. Can you picture Esther standing there in that moment? Man, her heart must have been pounding in her chest. I wonder if you could see the fear that was behind her eyes. She's put everything on the line for this moment. And what comes next, it's completely out of her control. You know, it's a, if you don't come through for me right now, God, I've got no plan B. It's that kind of moment. You ever found yourself in a moment like that? Maybe it wasn't quiet. Maybe your life wasn't quiet on the line. But a moment where you whispered under your breath, if you don't come through for me, God, right now, there's no plan B. Maybe in your workplace. Maybe you're, you're, you're walking to your boss's office. You can't condone what they're doing. You're about to tell them that. And you know at the end of the day, you're not going to have a job. Maybe it's that family conversation that you know you need to have, but you know it's not going down well. Probably going to result in ongoing family tension. Maybe you're sitting at the cafe. You're rehearsing in your head the speech because you're about to break off a relationship that you know is not pleasing to God. You're in the schoolyard and you're standing there. You're about to tell your friends you're not coming to that gathering on the weekend because instead you're going to church. It's social suicide. And your heart is pounding in your chest. Maybe there's fear in your eyes. And it feels like you're taking a step that puts it all on the line. And what comes next is completely in God's hands. You can't control it anymore. Do you feel like you can relate to Esther a little bit in this moment? Jesus could. 
You know, in chapter 22 of Luke's gospel, we get quite a remarkable insight into a moment in Jesus' life on earth. As he prepares to lay down his life on the cross to save his people, we get a record of the prayer that he prays in that moment. Luke tells us this. He says, and he withdrew, that's Jesus, from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and he prayed saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Can you feel the anguish in Jesus' prayer here? Father, if you're willing, can you remove this cup from me? If there's a plan B, can we go with that option? Yet not my will, but yours be done. It's the same heart position, really, as Esther's, if I perish, I perish, from chapter 4. Not my will, but yours be done, God. That's what trust really looks like. The courage to put it all on the line, to see God's purposes achieved. See, what we have here in this moment, one verse, Esther chapter 5 verse 1, as she puts her life on the line for her people, it's a picture of what Jesus did for you and I. Esther's submission to God's plan, her courage to be the mediator on behalf of her people, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus and what he did for us. See, like Esther but on a scale that's so much more uh, enormous than we can fathom. Jesus gave up his throne room in heaven and put it all on the line to save us. Philippians chapter 2 records this. Paul writes, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself, gave up his life so that God might save his people. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the message of the Bible, God's plan to save people from their sin, a plan that has been working from eternity past and no one and nothing can stop it. He's going to make it happen. And so like Esther, Jesus submits his life to the will of the Father in an act of courage and trust to save people like you and me. See, in reality, Esther didn't have anything to fear actually in this moment. She didn't know how things were going to play out, but God did. He had a plan and he was working it out. Chapters 5 and 6 of Esther, they're kind of like the pinnacle of God's demonstration of his power of providence. You ever played a strategy game against somebody that is just so much better than you, they annihilate you and it doesn't even feel like they're trying? Maybe a game of chess or something like that? It's kind of like God here in chapter 5 and 6 of Esther. His providence muscles are popping and he's not even flexing because he's built different. He's positioned Esther exactly where he needed her to be for this very moment. 
He's already ensured that the king that would be in a really good mood on this day so that he would grant Esther's request three days after Esther committed herself to pray. Little side note, you think that's impressive? You see what God does after three days around the Passover in the Gospels. See, when we enter here, chapter 6, we discover that God's already prepared a restless night for the king. He set it up that when he's restless, he's going to turn to the, to the book of memorable deeds. And it's just going to happen. It's just so going to be the case that he's going to get to the story of Mordecai at just the time that Haman is going to enter into the palace A move, by the way, that God had actually made a couple years earlier. And it would just so happen that he would know that that Haman's pride would perhaps create one of the funniest moments, I think, in the whole Bible. I mean, can you picture Haman's face in this moment here in chapter 6? As he anticipates the king calling out his name to receive the honor, and he waited with bating breath, and then the king says, Mordecai. My goodness me, not only is it his arch enemy, but his arch enemy is now going to get everything that he personally desperately wants, and he's going to have to lead his arch enemy through the city. I mean, come on. You can't make this stuff up, right? Let alone make it happen. God's not even flexing in this moment. God's providence Or as John Piper helpfully puts it, his purposeful sovereignty, it's on full display here in chapters 5 and 6. God's ability to bring about an ultimate purpose for the whole universe which cannot fail, it's extraordinary. I don't know if you've ever done a walk through some of the it-just-so-happened moments of your life to see God's providence at work. I highly recommend it. You know, you can start with, how did you get to be here this morning? Or how you came to faith in Christ. It just so happened that, dot, 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 you can fill in the blanks. And you can keep going back as far as you can link people and events. How they just so happened to be in your life at such a time as this. How it resulted in you hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus at just the right time. Because it just so happened that someone else had been in their life at such a time as this to tell them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can just keep going and going and going. It's amazing, right? It's amazing. 250 people in the room all here at the same time just so happen events constantly. He's working. Now, if that hasn't already made your draw drop just a little bit, have a think. Just how powerful has God got to be to have that level of control over the lives of 7 billion people simultaneously? Let alone for all history and all time. And he's not even breaking a sweat. See what God's showing us here in Esther chapter 5 and 6? God's kind of got this, right? He's working a plan to redeem his people, and nothing and no one can stop him from achieving his plans. But at the beginning of chapter 5, just like so much of life, Esther doesn't know the specifics of how this is going to play out. 
She's just holding on to the hope expressed back in chapter 4 that God will deliver his people. Her courage to enter the inner courtroom of the king isn't based on what she can see playing out ahead. That's what faith is. Stepping out when you don't see everything that's coming next. Because God's providence doesn't guarantee earthly blessing. Sometimes God's providence comes in the form of affliction. Just ask the persecuted church or the thousands of Christian martyrs throughout history. Like those Christians gathered around secret Bibles in North Korea, reading by candlelight after their home has been torn to shreds as authorities are looking for that Bible. Or the family in Pakistan whose teenage daughter was forcibly removed and married off because they dared tell somebody else about Jesus. God's providence doesn't automatically equal earthly blessing. That's where the rubber hits the road for us, right? That's when faith moves from just an intellectual exercise. Because like Esther... And even the persecuted Christians around the world, you and I have been specifically positioned by God and given the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for salvation, so that he might use us to achieve all that he purposes in redeeming a people to himself. And we can't always see how that's going to play out. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, then you've been called to recognize this position, but you've also been called to put it all on the line so that the gospel might be made known. Yeah, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What we see here in this chapter of Esther is she puts it all on the line for her people. It's not just a foreshadow of Jesus. It's also an example of what Jesus calls his followers to. Daily making decisions to put the gospel of Jesus Christ above everything else. But that's so hard, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but I find this so hard sometimes. You ever find yourself in that moment where you're with someone and you sense it'd be good to turn this conversation towards things of faith, but you just can't quite find the courage to take the shift to move it there. Or a moment in your life where there's an opportunity to do something significant for the sake of the gospel, change jobs, maybe move houses, change schools, go overseas, but there's no guarantees For what comes next? It's hard, isn't it? Not because we don't know enough. Not because we don't know the truth of God's providence. I'm sure many of us in this room know Romans 8, right? For we know in all things God works together for the good of those who love him. We could probably quote Joseph in Genesis, what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. You can probably quote Psalm 23, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. It's not so hard to find to trust God because I don't know enough. It's so hard because I often value what life can give me more than the eternal salvation that Jesus 
has won for me on the cross? Why does my mood shift so dramatically when my son isn't selected in the rep sports team? Because in that moment, I value his sporting success, or probably really how it reflects on me as a dad, more than I do the work of Christ in his life. Why do I get so nervous and then fail to shift the conversation with my mates over coffee to the gospel? Because in that moment, I value their approval of me more than I do their salvation. I seek to build a life of the things that the world can offer me. And all that I know to be true about God, his providence, his redemptive work, it seems to vanish because my heart isn't willing to leave those things behind. Can you see that in yourself? Can you see that in the things in your life that you value more in those moments than the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God to save people? See, I think the struggle that we have to have faith like Esther here in chapter 5, to follow the example of our risen and reigning King Jesus, is because we're so much more like the character of Haman here in chapter 5 than we care to admit. Did you notice the contrast between Esther and Haman in chapter 5? If Esther is depicted as the hero, then Haman is most certainly, as Tay-Tay would say, the anti-hero. Yeah, you know I said that. See, in chapter 5, we get this insight into Haman. He's hell-bent on building a life for himself, and he loves boasting about the life that he has. In verses 11 and 12, he's telling all his family and friends about his greatness. And yet, despite the net worth that he'd acquired, the family that he'd raised, the job promotions that he'd received, he couldn't be satisfied because he didn't have this one thing this respect from this one man. And so we get these remarkable words there in verse 13 of uh, chapter 6. Haman says this. He says, And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends and everything that happened to him. Sorry, let me back that up. Chapter 5, verse uh, 13, not chapter 6. Chapter 5, verse 13, he says, Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Have you found that trying to build a life on earth often feels like that? That despite all that you have and all that you've achieved, you're not satisfied because there's this one thing that you don't have. The Bible says that's exactly how things of the world work. No matter how hard we try or how much we have, our hearts can never be truly satisfied in them. You know, as this story kind of plays out, Haman's quest to build and protect his life is going to result in him losing it. Whereas Esther, who's willing to lay her entire life on the line, saves it. Two characters contrasting examples of the very thing that Jesus said about how life works. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Where has God in his providence positioned you? Who are the people in your life, in your family, in your street, in your workplace, your school, lecture hall, coffee shop, 
running track? Who are the people for whom you've been called to put it all on the line that they might discover the power of salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because like Esther, you have been uniquely positioned by God in the power of his providence to make Jesus known. Call daily to deny yourself, to step out in faith, that God's purpose of redeeming a people in himself might be worked in you and through you. Yeah, as we finish up this morning, as the band comes back up onto the stage, I want to take you back to chapter 5, verse 2. Come with me back to chapter 5, verse 2. Read this moment. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Again, use your imaginations to picture this moment. As the king glances across the room and he sees his bride, radiating beauty, standing there is the one in whom he finds delight. And instead of punishing her with death, like the law says she deserves, he reaches out his hand and extends his golden scepter of grace and mercy to her. Isn't that such a beautiful moment. There's not malice and disdain in the king's eyes for the woman who broke his law. There's love and delight for his bride. You know, the same is true for those who come before King Jesus. Even though we deserve death for our rejection of his good rule, when he sees us, his eyes aren't filled with malice and disdain. They're filled with love and delight. It means when we fail to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel, when we prioritize things on earth instead of putting it all on the line for Him, we can always come to King Jesus and He will always stretch out His hand with grace and mercy. There's no uncertainty in entering the courtroom of King Jesus. You know, if you're here this morning and you're realizing you've been trying to build a life on things of this earth that don't satisfy, or you're realizing you haven't been following Jesus' command to put it all on the line for his gospel, can I encourage you this morning? Come to King Jesus. He longs to reach out to you in grace and mercy. You know, the call of the gospel is to daily take up our cross, leave behind our reputations, what we've achieved, so that the gospel of Jesus Christ might be made known to people and that people might be redeemed. And maybe like Esther, we'll see the fruit of blessing in this life, or maybe like many others, it'll lead to affliction. But our hope rests not in the things of this world, but in a God who looks at us with delight and promises to reward us with joy on the other side of the cross and with life on the other side of the tomb. Let's pray. Father God, your love for us in Jesus is beyond anything we could possibly comprehend. King Jesus, that you gave up your throne room and humble yourself. 
giving up your life on the cross that we might find forgiveness and rest and life in you is extraordinary and we thank you, Jesus. Help this truth to sink deep into our hearts that we might cling to it and knowing the goodness of the gospel, we might step out in courage to proclaim this good news to the world around us that more and more people might discover the wonder of what it is to know you, King Jesus. And we pray this in your mighty and precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.